Welcome to Rare Book School. Our lecture, the, our lecture of this evening is one of the most popular lectures in Rare Book School, and as I hope you'll agree, with very good reason. Greer Allen on the Steinhauer Press. Thank you, Terry. When year after year I stand up here and say, thank you, Terry, it's a pleasure to be here, I run the risk of sounding perfunctory, hollow, and trite, unless once in a while I substantiate the claim with hard evidence. Well, several years back, when I wasn't feeling particularly defensive vis-a-vis the director of the pro this program, when I hadn't, for fear of becoming permanently lost in the winding, hilly back roads of rural Virginia, been tailgating his Mercedes command car, provoking, provoking as Daniel Berkeley Updike reminds us in his 1929 Book of Common Prayer, provoking most justly his wrath and indignation against me. <laughs> in other words, when I wasn't frozen in fear like some ungulate at bay, I penned the following words, quote, Dear Terry, let us put aside for a moment RBS's stature in the world of bibliography and the book arts. Put aside the fact that there's nothing else where I like the program. Try not to notice how world, the world of professional stewards is peppered with card-carrying members of your network. Grant all that. Still, we must recognize what Rare Book School really does. Whether by design or as a byproduct, of its teaching mission, it has become the social engine for so many in the field in passing back and forth through that epicenter, RBS, and its satellite goings-on. Friendships have been initiated, have grown and been rekindled, and proliferated for so many of us. Next to such a gift, the question of whether a duodecimo is folded this way or that way pales <laughs> utterly." Unquote. So now you understand how I can make bold to say, with conviction and with authority, thank you, Terry, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> and now to begin. I want to talk to you tonight about the beginnings of the Steinauer Press. And if you are not planners and producers of books, you are custodians of books, at least of your own personal collections, and most probably of institutional assemblages. And I'll venture that the preponderance of the books in your charge were produced from raised surfaces by what we have come to call letterpress printing, a process today somewhat awash in nostalgia. Not long ago, one letterpress printer, August Heckscher, operating from his high loft private press in Maine, remarked, I look upon letterpress printing as I do upon sailing. Both I dearly love. But merchant sailing vessels no longer ply their goods from port to port, nor are the printed pages we read today machined by letterpresses. Letterpress printing, like sailing, is no longer part of the economic of survival. Both now belong, both now belong to the economic of delight. Now, there are precious few printers among us here tonight. I see Janet Anderson and Chris Harrison, who command printers, and Terry Trenard, and it's clear that they did not enter the world of printing at mid-century, as did Bill Royal and I. Oh, how I wish that 
dear savior of the Book Arts Press Print Shop, were here tonight. Well, what was it like back then at mid-century? The computer-driven digital typesetting we enjoy today existed only in the minds of a few visionaries. There was some dabbling in photocomposition, but the dream that offset lithography might someday emerge to dominate our industry was distant thunder beyond the horizon. We sensed that by a mysterious laying on of hands, we were practicing the same technology which mid-15th century dabblers had developed to mass-produce cheap substitutes for handwritten books, namely the letterpress printing direct from hand-assembled pieces of type. Sure, modifications had evolved during the Industrial Revolution. No sooner had Stan Hope, around 1800, built his stronger metal version of Gutenberg's wooden flat surface to flat surface press than two Germans, Koenig and Bauer, persuaded the London Times to try their new invention, where a large metal cylinder could roll a much larger press sheet across an assemblage of many more pages and still achieve the necessary impressional strength. Their cylinder press was the prototype for the Van de Cooks on which so many of our fine press printers of artist books produce their work today. The next logical step, then, was to cast a curved replica of the type form, clamp it to the plate cylinder of a rotary press, and lo, they were printing newspapers at high speeds onto continuous rolls of paper. And two, by the middle of the 20th century, pages of type were no longer laboriously handset line by line because two inventions had changed all that. In 1886, Otmar Mergenthaler developed his linotype machine, which turned out raised letters and spaces in their proper sequence on one piece of metal per line. And about the same time, Tolbert Lanston built his ingenious monotype contraptions, which produced individual letters and spaces in proper sequence, just as if they had been set by hand. Well, there we were, in 1950, arranging pages of metal type to print directly onto paper, just as they had done 500 years before. And we were quite aware of the residual momentum of that past, which had given us our terminology, which explained why we did things the way we did to meet the expectations of readers so that we could communicate with them clearly and with grace. And we looked to the old masters of the craft for models and inspiration, adding, as we chose, our own Phillips and individuality. But that's how we did it. That's how we earned our bread. There was no other way. And to be reminded, as you think about a craft which no longer dominates the print culture, be reminded, nay, marvel, that its disciplines, shaped by the necessary dictates of the rectangular metal page, its rules for how the alphabet might and might not be used, and its tra traditions, which responded to the expectations of readers, be thankful that these carry forward and persist today into a digital technology capable, with its dreadful freedoms, of violating every guideline forged through 500 years of the letterpress craft. Well, enter Roderick Steinauer into that letterpress world of 1950. A young man whose bride was no more eager for him to persist in his trade as an airplane pilot than was mine that I continued to ride racehorses in steeplechases. <laughs> Hence the maxim, sobriety engenders typography. <laughs> Thank you.
The tale has been told in this book how Rocky, fondly remembering his high school days as yearbook editor, started job hunting among the print shops of that northeast kingdom of Vermont, which he called home, and where he and his wife Elizabeth were determined to dwell and raise their family. Fortunately, Rocky ran across dear old Mr. Bisbee in his job printing shop among the outbuildings of a Lunenburg farm. Business cards, church programs, wedding invitations, you know the sort of thing. Well, no sooner had Rocky convinced Mr. Bisbee to take him on as an apprentice than Bisbee saw Rocky'd get nowhere until he'd gained some outside exposure beyond what that little country shop could teach him. Help was at hand. Because down the road at Dartmouth was graphic arts professor Ray Nash, even then a regional treasure and credited today as a major catalyst in the flowering of the classical typographic tradition along the East Coast. No need to play Where's Waldo to identify in the graphic arts world those besides Rocky Steinauer whose typographic twigs were bent by Ray Nash, Alvin Eisenman, Eisenman who built the first graduate graphic design program, the one at Yale, David Godin, Boston publisher of exceptional books. Rick Graffay, executive secretary of the American Institute of Graphic Arts. Sinclair Hitchings, of Boston Public Library's graphic arts curator. Our world abounds in them. Well, by 1948, with two years of wartime college credits under his belt, Rocky enrolled at Dartmouth as a junior, determined to graduate two years later. But in the last months of his senior year, Mr. Bisbee suddenly died. Rocky scrambled between classes and in the summer after graduation to help the widow keep the operation going, but she found the prospect overwhelming and hinted as to how young Mr. Steinauer might like to buy the business. Well, young Mr. Steinauer did not have the wherewithal, however much he longed to do so. But enter that visionary Ray Nash once again quite aware on the one hand that Dartmouth boasted no printing office which could lend distinction to the graphics emanating from that college, and aware on the other hand that he had just graduated a young man who harbored the determination to print useful books and periodicals of scholarly and literary value. In advancing Rocky the down payment on that little shop, Ray Nash knew he was establishing a de facto Dartmouth College printing office run by a young adept who yearned to emulate the printing offices of the prominent private universities with their roots in tradition, Harvard, Princeton, Yale. But really, I doubt that Ray Nash could have foreseen that that little press would come to hold the singular preeminence it enjoys today as a typographic establishment with insistent standards of editorial accuracy and grace and an envied leader in the field of image replication having absorbed the Meriden Gravure Company with which Steinauer Press had shared in the production of distinguished publications almost from the outset. To print useful books and periodicals of scholarly and literary value, Rocky's own words, extended and ennobled here in Stephen Harvard's calligraphy. From this, one might assume that there had for centuries been the demand for useful, smashing scholarly books in the fields of art and bibliography. Steinauer's specialties, just waiting there for the press to tap into. 
Well, to get a handle on things, we must really go way back to London's Crystal Palace exhibition of 1851, that industrial fair spearheaded by Queen Victoria's Prince Albert to gold British manufacturers into showing the world that the designs and productions of useful things from that little isle were every bit as well-made and graceful as anything coming from the continent. So along with those splashy exhibit booths came a spate of catalogs like this one. And we can see how easily these Crystal Palace catalogs furnished models not only for the imposing publications issued by those wealthy private book collectors in the late 19th century, but also for the institutional library and museum catalogs which were to succeed them decades later. Catalogs, notes historian Thomas Tansel, give the permanence of print to assemblages of books not necessarily destined to remain together. Late last century, there emerged the exhibition of collections of books, or at least the agglomeration of many notable books, into one private library, plus its catalog, which gave the collection, and in so doing, the collector's pride and discernment, the permanence of print. Here, so sumptuous in its way, laden with all the pretentiousness of the age, comes Dodd Mead's 1895 release, 176 historic and artistic book bindings in the collection of printing press manufacturer Robert Ho, produced by the American printer Theodore Lowe de Vinay. Its reproductions are brilliant, preponderantly stone lithography or, and photogelatin with occasional photo-assisted hand-cut intaglio plates such as these. Those binding illustrations are next, the next thing to real. It had hoped earnestly to assume its place alongside the rich manuscripts and incutable folios in Mr. Pierpont Morgan's library, but it fell so short by dint of the ephemeral paper stock and the wispy, graceless, mechanized Roman capital letters on the text pages. The benchmarks of one's age are almost impossible to disguise. But illustration rep reproduction was the great strength a century back. Here's illustrations from 100 manuscripts in the library of Henry Yates Thompson, London, the Chiswick Press, seven volumes issued between 1910 and 17, with disastrous gutta perka, perfect binding, which let these exemplary pictures float away from their moorings. Collectors there had been, and still were, but collectors of rare books were first and foremost amassers of objects. They were meant to represent a civic commitment to learning by proud, successful individuals at a time when few could own books. It all smacked of the pride of possession. But during the 1920s, the papers of Dr. Johnson's biographer, James well Boswell, were uncovered and lured <coughs> in chunks to a university library. That pattern was repeated all over the civilized world. Materials began to be studied. Private and later public monies were made available for that study. And the catalog became as much a vehicle through which scholars talked to each other as one which, with pride, materials were set before an admiring lay public. The move was toward describing the book in the round, the range of its physical details, variances from other volumes, and its significance in shaping or reflecting some corner of history. This is Thomas Wise's 1925 catalog of the Ashley Library. And many examples of texts and proofs, not just covers, 
title pages and illustrations showed the new and broader way to provide the reader with visual information. While the entries' texts drew increasingly upon insights of analytical, descriptive, and historical bibliography. In 1940, the catalog of the Fortzheimer collection was issued. The handsome type pages carry full, usable entries. It's informatively, informatively illustrated in color type and line photo engraving. And the transcriptions set new standards for the way varieties of title page typography were to be presented in the decades to follow. So one can see the continuity of this emerging tradition by the time the Morgan Library issued its 1975 catalog of early children's books composed by Steinauer, printed by Meredith Couture, and distributed by David Godin. Its primary subdivisions are the subject fields, each with its own chapter opening. There's a generous space throughout, and the illustrations are beautifully reproduced and placed. The size of format, the fine antique finished paper, the characteristic generosity of type size and leading of white space around type masses and illustrations, the use of types based on 15th century models of subtle reference to manuscripts and to incunable books forged in another age. These define the standards which the worlds of frontline museums and libraries have come to expect from the Steinauer Press and which it persists in its ability to deliver. To deliver that peculiar constellation of services, I want to make clear. Heaven knows, all over the world today there are printers who can lay exquisite, rich, full-color images down on dull-coated papers, those most in demand in Steinauer's <laughs> corner of the trade. But as soon as a client asks for a soft finish, uncoated sheet, the field of printers who can do an outstanding job narrows dramatically. That's one particular edge. Now to another. When I ran the printing operations for the University of Chicago and for Yale, I yearned that those who met our clients might be designers, every one. What a fond dream in bureaucracies where merit and advancement are based on one's ability to reduce costs. Yet a valid wish for any printing house with noble ambitions. Well, if you had followed the staff of the Steinauer Press through the years, you will realize how close they've come to that ideal. There have always been the featured staff designers. In the beginning, there were, of course, Rocky himself, Edith McKeon Abbott, and colleague Freeman Keith, shown here, who planned so much of the work. And then, in later years, Stephen Harvard, Mark Argetsinger, and even later, Jerry Kelly. But design talent there has always run deeper than the studio itself. The number of people who have served as what we call today account executives who stay with the job and hold the client's hands from beginning to the end, but who could also turn out a distinguished piece of typographic design has been legion. I think of Paul Hoffman here and Tony Pizzo and John Quay currently on the press's staff. The list does not even include those enthusiastic young sprouts with design potential who have done a term at Steinauer and gone on to distinction. Daryl Hyder, who with his wife, talented artist Elizabeth, now operates the Sun Hill Press. Rick Graffay, Sinclair Hitchings, Kit Kunsey, and museum catalog designer Katie Homans, endowed with classic taste in keeping with the tradition which Steinauer has been espousing from its beginning. So we ask, what was that tradition? 
Where did it come from? And why have so few commercial printing houses vied with Steinauer for leadership in that discipline we so venerate? Where it came from? It was fallout from the late 19th century arts and crafts movement. People had wearied of the sort of timid type and uncertain placement which, placement which characterized so much 19th century printing. But the typographic genes which descended from arts and crafts came not from the romantic, heavily decorated books of the movement's spokesman, Englishman William Morris. His Chaucer is shown here, but rather from the letter forms and placement of one who had an intuitive sense of what constituted an image of Western humanism, Thomas Cobden Sanderson, who worked at his Dove Press outside London. And his American spiritual descendants were book planners like Bruce Rogers and Frederick Ward and a spate of presses set up to issue their particular private imprints. But beyond these were the establishments which must draw our attention because they were, like Steinauer, printing businesses dependent for survival on a range of clients who in turn depended on them during the teens and the 1920s and 30s and 40s for guidance and judgment in editing and in matters of taste. The press in Boston of Daniel Berkeley Updike, Fred Antunson's press in Portland, Maine, and in New York, the Pinson Printers and the Harbor Press, which did a great deal of work for that contrarian venture the Limited Editions Club. Contrarian, I say. Here's its Grimm's fairy tales with Fritz Cradle's drawings cut in wood, blending exquisitely with a typeface by its master, by his master, Rudolf Koch, and touched with the watercolors of Cauchoir. The Limited Editions Club was a contrarian venture because here was an imprint underway just after the great economic collapse of 1929, a publishing house commissioning printers all over the world to issue literary classics in a rather lavish form. At the same time, across the Atlantic, Sir Francis Mennell's Nonesuch Press was doing similar things. Contrarian and shrewd. Those two publishers must have sensed that a whole class of society used to living it up would need to cut back and subscribing to a series of beautifully planned, illustrated, and crafted works of literature was a lot more affordable than a transatlantic crossing or six weeks on the Riviera. The 1930s were, ironically, the golden years of Nonsuch and Limited Editions Club and of those printers we mentioned. For proof, just riffle through the annual of bookmaking, the 1938 swan song of the Colophon, that hardbound book collector's quarterly, which had appeared right after the market crash of 29 and wound down when the approaching World War II prosperity tempted excess money elsewhere. Now, it should be noted that during the 1930s and 40s, presses were getting underway, which traded on their ability to advise the client to conceive and shape the appearance of the end product. The press of A. Kolisch could offer clients a selection of the most tasteful of the typefaces which the Monotype Corporation had revived from past centuries. Joseph Blumenthal started up his spiral press and produced New York publishers' books at a quality level far above what they were used to. And the press of Bert Clark and David Way carried that sort of service forward into the 1960s. But the most remarkable and memorable example of the printer on whom clients were seduced to depend was Harold Hugo, shown here relaxing at the left with Rocky Steinauer. 
It was Harold Hugo who led the Meriden Gravure Company to target the most promising and fallow market at the height of the economic depression, namely the libraries, the art museums, and the university presses. Promising because their budgets, though modest, did not fluctuate dramatically with the economy, and fallow because the people who ran them had no idea how to produce what was expected. But there was Harold Hugo, waiting to advise them in envisioning their books and to deliver smashing illustrations for those books, in sum, to help them enhance their reputation by looking good. Now, what happened since the 1930s and 40s to change all that? Why doesn't the trade today abound in printers crying, just leave us your manuscript, your transparencies, your pile of 8 by 10 inch photo prints, and come back in six months and we'll give you a skid stack with breathtaking books which will seem as if they had just come from the ateliers of Aldous Minutius or Nicholas Jensen or Giambattista Badoni. Why? Two reasons. One was the consequence of the great of a great definitive war. What happens at the close of such a war? It happened at the close of the 1914-18 war. There occurs in the world of art not only an active repudiation of past norms by those in the avant-garde, witness the architectonic typography after World War I, but to many, many people there dawns the realization with a sigh of relief. Now we can begin to build that great, big, beautiful tomorrow free from the baggage of the past, which could only remind us of the hardship and pain of what we have just been through. I remember coming home from World War II. Pretty soon, pure, clean, Swedish modern furniture and Charles Ames chairs were sweeping the past aside, and we took to it. Now let me tell you a tale out of school, because it pinpoints what we're getting at. In Yale's graphic design program, we have year-end faculty reviews of each student's work. Now, one of the assignments last year was to do a little booklet about some graphic designer of a student's choice, and one was showing the, and explaining what she had done. If I had it to do over again, she said, I would never have chosen Hermann Zopf. I don't like his work. Hardly had she got out the words than two other visiting faculty examiners chimed in, neither do I, and neither do I. And another asked, I wonder why it is. Then a long pause. Well, you can imagine, I could not remain silent. <laughs> While trying to conceal my own position in the matter, I made the point that there are two camps. One holds that the graphic world is best served by a continuity in the way the alphabet is used and placed, adding subtle nuances and graces to the way things have always been done. And in that camp belong Hermann Zapf and those who cherish what he does. In the other are those committed to exploring ways of creating a new language of vision. And it's only natural that those teaching in this program and those enrolling in it should per pursue this more adventurous, more experimental direction. So the new alternative way of handling graphics, which had had a vestigial presence in America ever since Europe's Bauhaus took refuge in Chicago in the late 1930s, this new way came increasingly to the fore, and the habit of planning typography by referring to a canon which retained a continuous connection with the past 
was no longer the only way. And although the ranks of those who adhered passionately to the retrospective, retrospective approach were growing thin, Steinauer Press remained among them. The second reason. The second reason that the printer is today less frequently given rein to conceive the whole piece is the emergence of the designer. Who will contest that an exemplary designer of our own age was Paul Rand, father of the IBM, the ABC, the UPS logos. Arresting images just kept floating out of his head. But he was a prickly man whom Alvin Eisenman managed to retain on his Yale faculty by wearing at all times the finest obtainable pair of kid gloves. Well, onto that faculty came I, a very junior member. And Paul and I were introduced at a school affair. What do you teach? He asked. Well, I, I take students to the paper mills and graphic manufacturing plants, and I show them how to work with printers. Printers? Printers? Well, Paul's heartfelt outburst demonstrated how printers had grown to be viewed as hired dime-a-dozen functionaries with neither the ability nor the right to determine how a piece should look. So it's all the more remarkable that the Steinauer Press should, all through its formative years and on so many occasions today, be looked to 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 envision and shape the client's finished product, or with sensibility to understand and help realize the designer's dream of what that finished piece should be. I once heard someone ask Rocky, why in this world where time is money, why should any designer traipse up to Lunenburg, up here almost to the end of the earth for all its romantic scenery, for all its soul-soothing quietude and pine-scented air, never mind the wild moose drinking at the mill pond, why just to get a job printed? Well, without pausing a nanosecond, Rocky countered, because leading designers know we understand them. We speak design. We share their love of good materials. We act in their interest. An example... You know how publications are produced today. You send the printer a postscripted file on disk, the printer outputs film, sends you a blue line proof, and bango, it gets printed. Well, last fall I sent such a disk to the Steinauer Press. And just as I was about to phone asking, hey, where are my blue line proofs? I get this call from Paul Hoffman. Greer, do you realize that you have inconsistent figures, some aligning, some old style? And a number of your word breaks don't conform to Webster? They had run out laser proofs of all the pages from my disk and passed them through their proof room. I hadn't asked for that. Most lithographic printers I might have set the job to don't even have a proof room. Saved by the bell. We act in the designer's interest, and they know it. Well, now you have a sense of the world in which the Steinauer Press got itself established. Now you have a sense of that world in which the Steinauer Press got itself established. And even of the origins of that world. So it's time we saw something of what they really did up there in those startup years. With a few clamshell job presses, a book press only 
half usable because a wrench had clearly been fed through one side of the impression cylinder back in Mr. Bisbee's day. And with only two decent types they could machine set on their monotype, Carl Wallens held that the fact that the early printers were limited to a choice of few contemporary types was the principal force in shaping their style. He called it the economy of scarcity. So at Steinauer, you could have any type you pleased as long as it was, as it was Bulmer or Bembo. Hence that recognizable early style. Now, it's essential to remember that two people, two individuals beyond those on the staff itself, were vital to the success of that newborn press. Ray Nash, we already noted. He established Rocky as Dartmouth's de facto college printer, and soon all sorts of finished jobs were on their way from Lunenburg down to Hanover. And to Ray Nash, dismayed at the commercial turn taken by print magazine, which he had helped to found back in 1940, now established with Rocky and historian Rollo Silver the little magazine Printing and the Graphic Arts, affectionately remembered as PAGA, to guarantee a forum for graphic historical matters. And Steinauer Press, of course, printed and published it. Its first issue was February of 51, a quarterly, think of it, subscription, $1 a year. And it continued as the only American journal of its kind for over a decade. Bylines included Adrian Wilson and Jan Chickold, revealing here, reveal revealing here at the top of the slide, oh yes, revealing at the top of the slide, how Chinese woodblocks were color registered without the benefit of registration pins. And there was the Enskede type foundries, Jan van Krimpen and Sinclair Hitchings on typesetting verse. What this meant, what this meant was that in its early days, the Steinauer Press was deep into publishing. Here are examples and a catalog of some of its early imprints. Perhaps Rocky Steinauer had heard that in a century before, during lean days out in Chicago, Mrs. R. R. Donnelly had taken to writing cookbooks so her husband could manufacture and market them just to keep the printing business afloat. Well, we see how Ray Nash provided much of the early core patronage. And, and he suggested that Rocky visit Harold Hugo down at the Meriden Gravure Company in Central Connecticut. Soon Rocky was asking Harold to print illustrations for Steinauer jobs, and Harold was buying typesetting from Rocky. But that's not the half of it. Harold took Rocky under his wing, introduced him to Meriden's first-line clients in the world of cultural establishments. And soon the Steinauer Press was doing work for Harvard, for the Boston's Museum of Fine Arts, and for an ever-widening circle, which included private imprints, positioning the press for those later larger projects to which it owes its fame and its devoted following. And culminating in the exhibit 25 years later, in the exhibit at Dartmouth in 1975, celebrating the press's, press's first quarter century. That this press goes on today in the same buildings where it started, surviving the harsh realities of business life, hewing rather unswervingly to its purpose of serving the scholarly community at a standard which pleases a small and exquisitely particular segment of society. The late Leonard Baskin branded those who care about the niceties of printing the tiniest lunatic fringe in the nation. 
But the fact that Steinauer Press continues to persist in its concentrated purpose is certainly the most refreshing oasis in our hectic, kaleidoscopic world of graphic reproduction. Now, in closing, let me say to you, librarians and book collectors, who I hope will look at their charges with a little more thought to the immediacy and tangible reality which brought forth their artifacts in the tradition forged by Johann Gutenberg, and particularly to you, to you who will get a taste of real-world bibliography in the courses which RBS offers in its print shop, pick up your composing sticks and set type. You'll be swept back each time into a monumental tradition in the progress of civilization, monuments made of brick and stone are bulldozed asunder every day. But not the monuments the Steinauer Press has left behind. For you and I know the surest ticket to immortality is an entry in the records of the Library of Congress. <laughs> Thank you.